morning. If you would uh, turn to Acts 13, we're going to be reading the first 12 verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Selmus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in God's word. Father, make us what we profess to be. Let our prayer be prayer and praise be heartfelt praise. From pretense, O Lord, set us free and let our words be echoed by our ways. Amen. We are once again back in the book of Acts. This is our third summer, now in the book of Acts here at Hope in Christ Church. We've been charting a course uh, through the book of Acts. The journey began two summers ago, 2012. We covered Acts 1 through uh, 6 verse 8, right up to the point where Stephen was about to be persecuted and martyred. Last summer, we covered then 6, 9 through the end of chapter 12. And we saw the gospel moving out of Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's where we finished last summer. This summer, the plan, Lord willing, is to cover Acts 13 and to go through Acts 21, somewhere in Acts 21 as they complete the third missionary journey. We'll see that the gospel movement is going to extend to the very end of the earth. And then 2015 seems like a long ways away. But again, Lord willing, we will complete our fourth leg of the journey and we'll take Acts 21 through 28 and see the gospel movement to Rome. We'll talk about and and, and look at Paul's trials and his eventual Roman house arrest. This particular summer being the third leg of the journey, really, when broken down, it's the first of two parts to come. Because when we go back to the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is our... This is our primary verse. Really, as you read through the book of Acts, you you need to read it 
with the lens of Acts 1.8 in your mind. Jesus says here in Acts 1.8, speaking to his disciples, you shall receive power, he's called them to wait, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. We need to remember that Acts 1.8 serves as the very outline of the entire book of Acts. And so 2012 covered the witnessing in Jerusalem. 2013 covered the witnessing in Judea and Samaria. 2014 is really part one of witnessing to the end of the earth. And 2015 will be part two of witnessing to the earth, end of the earth. Okay, so Acts is, is one of the 27 New Testament books deemed, what kind of genre is Acts? Somebody tell me, what is it? History, yeah. It's the one history book, in fact, we have in the New Testament. There are many history books in the Old Testament, aren't there? But there just is one that's really labeled history in the New Testament. It's the book of Acts. It's the one we're in right now. And it's, it's specific history. It's not your typical history book with dates, names, places, events. It has those, as we'll see. But it's a history of the church, And the history charts the movement of God's people from the time of Jesus' ascension, Acts 1, until the time of Paul's arrest in Rome, in Acts 28. And that amounts to roughly 30 years of history. Roughly. 33 A.D., 63 A.D. About 30 years of history we're talking about here in the book of Acts. Okay? Paul spends about 15 of those years journeying across the Mediterranean world. The fourth trip, he sails to Rome as a prisoner awaiting trial, which you see at the end of the book of Acts. And scripture seems to indicate that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, and that he traveled again to Macedonia for a time, where perhaps he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. He was then arrested once again and placed back in Roman imprisonment. And during that second Roman imprisonment, perhaps penned 2 Timothy, his last epistle, before dying. Under the hand of Nero. We're going to cover the first three missionary journeys this summer. The first of which begins around 46, 47 AD. Now it's important to understand that travel back then, in the first century, it took much longer. It was was more hazardous. It was physically taxing on the body. There were no comforts of airplanes. Fast-moving trains, automobiles, you had a horse, you had a donkey. If you were wealthy enough, you maybe had a chariot. If you were traveling over the water, perhaps you could have access to a, a ship or boat. And then you had your two feet. And there were a lot of walking, a lot of walking. A lot of walking back in the day. And you know, you think about Paul and you think about the number of miles that he covered on his journey just in his feet alone. I was reminded as I was thinking about him walking and journeying with his two feet. I was reminded of that passage in Isaiah and just reminded of how beautiful his feet was. And I know that sounds like an odd statement. But you know, Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, 
who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, Paul and his companions, they took their feet as they were led by the Holy Spirit into lands that needed to hear the good news. They needed to hear these glad tidings of good things. They needed someone bursting on the scene proclaiming the peace of Christ in the midst of chaos. And they desperately needed to know what it meant to be saved. And they needed reminders of who this God of heaven is. Well, the church of Jesus Christ today needs feet as well. Willing to carry this same good news to others. And you may not have thought of your feet as beautiful. But I do hope that you've thought about your role in proclaiming the good news message to others. I do hope you speak often of the Lord reigning and exalting him in your conversations with others. When you arrive at the book of Acts, the tendency is to read it simply as another history book. The history recorded in Acts is not simply for the brain to absorb and go, I got that fact, I got that fact, I got that fact. Nor are we to read the Bible as a whole in that way. But thinking specifically about history, allowing, allowing the heart to receive the history and to see that this history, this church history, is the beginning point for the church of which we are a part if we are in Christ. So there's immediately now a connection because we're in Christ. We are a part of the church. We are living in the church age. This church age is some 2,000 years old, isn't it? And what we're reading about in the book of Acts is the beginning point of God's church. This is an exciting time to read about this and to see what God's doing through his church. This church is intended in being built on one foundation as it goes, Christ. And you see how the church operated here, what the church believed, and the extent to which the church went for the sake of the gospel truth. You see, on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, this church lives like Christ really did die for them. This church lives like Christ really did get raised from the tomb. They lived as new creations and they spoke boldly of Christ, whose name, as we'll see, they took on. Christian. Well, I hope all this whets your appetite just a bit for what's to come in our study. I have no interest, no interest whatsoever in boring you with the word. This word is, is exciting. This word is, it ought to be, if we're in Christ, this is God's revelation, his revealed word to us. And so it's my hope that we can walk through these things together over the next several weeks and study this church history, not as some cold rope memorization taking the facts, but as life-breathing good news message that it's intended to be. Okay? If we're in Christ, this will be a delight to us. This will be a joy to go back and to be able to see the early church and how God was working and manifesting himself through the lives of those in his church. I'm going to be referencing some points along the way. Did you happen to bring your maps this morning? Somebody bring a map? Okay, good. Good. You can pull those out. Hopefully you got those there beside you. 
And I just thought giving those out would be a, a nice tool to, to have. And if you don't have that map, you probably have a map in the back of your Bible. You can use it. But I just thought having a consistent map for everybody to use might be a, might be a good thing. So um, go ahead and pull those out. And we can listen together, we can learn, we can kind of lean forward in light of this being God's word. So look, look at the first three verses here. They, 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 they seem to be packaged here together for us. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, who had been brought up with, the Herod, with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, or as they worshipped the Lord, some translations say, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, the text begins with a reference to the church at Antioch. On your map, if you're looking at your map, you might notice there are two reference points labeled Antioch. There's one on the far eastern side, Right, And then there's one a little bit further the other direction. I believe your map is, is separated into little quadrants. Okay, I think that's how it's set up here. And so, really, if you're looking at your map, you see that the Antioch on the far east side is in F2. F2, you see that? Antioch. There's also an Antioch in the northwest corner of E2. This is a, sort of like Battleship, isn't it? All right, you're finding these locations on here. Antioch. There's two of them. Here's what I want you to do if you've got something to write with. The Antioch on the far east would be, would be referred to as uh, Syrian Antioch or Antioch of Syria. Okay? The Antioch that is E2 coordinate would be labeled Poseidon Antioch. Okay? In fact, there, are, there seem to be a, a lot of different places that were named Antioch in the day. But these are two that are on our map here as we're looking and covering this first journey. Um, it's important that we kind of get some difference because he's going to get to Poseidon Antioch next week as we get into a little bit later in chapter 13. But for today, his starting point is the church of Antioch in, in Syria. So I want to make sure we're clear on what that looks like in terms of the map. Okay, so Syrian Antioch. It was about 300 miles on the map. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. See Jerusalem on your map? It's about 300 miles north, Syrian Antioch. And this Antioch is only about 15 miles from Seleucia. You see Seleucia? It's right next to Antioch on the map. Seleucia was the port city. It was the closest port city to Antioch. Okay, so from Seleucia, then you were less than a day away from the island of Cyprus. Okay? In fact, it was said that when you were at the port of Seleucia, you were able to see on a clear day, you were able to see the island of Cyprus within a day's travel. Okay? So a little bit of um, understanding there of where they were at. And so before Paul and Barnabas traveled to Cyprus, these first few verses here, they provide a little bit of a window into the life of the church at Antioch. In fact, it's a window that has already been opened on this church at Antioch, and, and I believe it's helpful to just briefly look at what already has been opened for us to know about this church in Antioch. If you turn backwards one page in your Bible, probably in chapter 11, verse 19, you see, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, all right, so right there we just pause, and we flip backwards again to Acts chapter 8, and we see that Saul was at this time consenting to Stephen's death. 
Great persecution arose against the church. 8 verse 1. Look at 8 verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered because of Stephen's persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. All right, now go back to 11, 19. And they, were tra- they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus. That ought to, you can circle that one. You can just take note of that one. They traveled as far as Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene's on your map too. It's northern Africa. The region of Cyrenica, I believe, is what it's labeled on your map. But Cyrene is right there. Northern Africa. There were men from Cyrene and men from Cyprus who traveled to Antioch. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was upon these men. Praise the Lord. The church in Antioch was growing. It says, many believed and turned to the Lord, verse 21 of Acts 11. Verse 22, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out, guess who they send out? Barnabas. Barnabas goes from Jerusalem and he goes as far as Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God at work there in that church. He was glad. He encouraged them all with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The church is growing in Antioch. Barnabas then departs for Tarsus. Who might be in Tarsus? Saul. Saul's been in Tarsus. So Barnabas travels to to Cilicia, the region of Cilicia, where, where Tarsus is located. And when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was, for a whole year, they assembled with the church at Antioch and taught a great many people there. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, because now they were, this is interesting, this comes right on the heels of of finding out that the church was called Christian in Antioch. Well, now Luke gives us, Luke the historian who's writing this, he gives us an example of how they were living out their Christianity. They are contributing, they're giving, they're serving the church in Jerusalem. Did they have a lot in common with this church in Jerusalem? I don't think they had a whole lot in common. As we'll see as we keep going, tracking, and we get to an Acts 15 Jerusalem council, we're going to see there are some differences between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. However, they understood some things about what it meant to be a Christian. And so they give. And they send to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. That's the, that's the end of chapter 11. Look at the last verse in chapter 12, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. They did their ministry when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, take all of that context of the church in Antioch, bring it along with you as you come into Acts chapter 13. And this is a church where the Lord is at work. God didn't start working in Antioch in chapter 13. All right, that's the picture I want to paint for you. He's not starting it right here. He has been doing it. He's been at work. And his church, they've been hungering. They've been thirsting for God's word. They've been consumed in what God is doing. So when you open up to Acts 13, 1, 2, and 3, it's not such an odd thing that the Holy Spirit has set apart these two men to go, to be the instruments through which the outline of Acts 1, 8 can continue to the very end of the earth. See, the gospel moved to the end of the earth through called men. 
But the men who were called to go came from a church in Antioch that was receptive to hearing from the Lord. A hearing church and hungering hearts for the Lord's work. Great context for God to speak and move in the world. We look and we see the makeup of the spiritual leaders, these prophets and teachers, these certain prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. We have Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew, a Levite from Cyprus. Acts 4.36 tells us he's from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger, meaning black. Possible that this gentleman was from northern Africa, alongside the one who comes next, Lucius, who is from northern Africa in Cyrene. Then you have Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And then you have Saul, Hellenistic Jew, had much pharisaical training, taught by Gamaliel, very learned in the law, Roman citizen from Tarsus. You think about just this mixture of these five men. Multi-ethnic. Unity in the midst of diversity. Put on display right here. These men leading in this church, gathering around the one who really mattered, and that's Christ. They're gathering around the truth of the gospel. They're gathering around the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit working is always this pointing to the work in words of Christ. What about the church as a whole? Well, the church at Antioch, according to the text, was a worshiping church. They were ministering to the Lord. Do you see that? They were ministering and worshiping to the Lord. This church was about that. The prophets and teachers that were mentioned in verse 1 were not the only ones worshiping the Lord. The church at Antioch took that on as their responsibility and privilege, being, get this, being a Christian. This was one thing that they did. They worshiped the Lord. It was a joy to worship the Lord as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. The church at Antioch was able to hear from the Lord in order to commission Saul and Barnabas for the journey. Their lives, as I read, their lives seem to be consumed in the Lord's purposes. They prayed together and fasted, longing to hear from the Lord and see Him work. And in verse 2, you see the Holy Spirit speaking as they ministered or worshipped the Lord and fasted. Now, exactly how these words of the Holy Spirit were delivered and communicated to the church were not clear. But we are clear on the Spirit speaking to the church as they were worshiping the Lord. And some have asked the question, well, who sent them out? Did the church send them out or did the Spirit send them out? I would put before you, is it not possible that the Spirit spoke to the church and at the same time spoke to these men? I believe He spoke to the church because the church was hearing. They were desiring to listen and hear from the Lord. But I believe that the Spirit was also calling these two men. And so in conjunction with the church and these two men and, and all of them together collectively in the church, hearing from the Lord, these men are sent out. You see, a church that, that worships the Lord draws near to God, humbly submits herself to the Lord. 
This, cannot, this, this kind of thing cannot be just manufactured on a Sunday morning only. It flows out of a relationship one has with Christ, a relationship that manifests itself in a hunger and a thirst for God, a thirsting for His Word. Uh, listen, a thirsting for His Word in the midst of what Psalm 63 says, a dry and thirsty land. We, we live among a dry, and it's just a dry, it's a dry land. And yet the church is called to hunger and thirst for him, for his word. In the midst, in the context of a parched nation. A famine in the land, as one of the prophets says. There's a spiritual famine in the land. And the church of Jesus Christ ought to be longing and looking for the Lord. Desiring to hear from his word. So what does the Holy Spirit say in the text? He says, now separate to me. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul. One writer says that the essence of the call here was less geographical than it was possessional. It was a call to be given up to God. Listen, he says, missional service means at its heart our becoming entirely available to God. Our becoming entirely available to God. The question of whose we are is always more critical than the question of where we are. Availability trumps itinerary in God's service. So Barnabas and Saul's being yielded to God was primary. And the geographical location of their service was in that sense secondary and would follow later. Availability. What happens when the church, out of love for God, out of love for God's word and his church, what happens when the church becomes entirely available to God? What happens? Think about that. The church at Antioch models what this looks like. The Spirit speaks, the Lord moves, lives are changed, gospel prevails, priorities really do change. The Spirit says, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. One commentator says the work that the Holy Spirit assigns to Barnabas and Saul is to acquaint the world with Christ's gospel and to extend the church to the ends of the earth. To acquaint the world with Christ's gospel and to extend the church to the ends of the earth. Church, we need to understand, gospel work is always hard work. And we see evidence of this in the life of Jesus himself as he was here on earth. In the gospels, you read about this quite often. Jesus is going about, he's teaching, he's preaching, and we see in the Gospels how well received he is when he shares the truth. See, having been set apart by the Spirit here in Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul were about to begin a divinely orchestrated work. The work wasn't going to be easy. The work would cost them their lives. The work was sacrificial this work was going to depend on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit calls you to a work, church, you can be assured that he will equip you with what is necessary for the journey. I was thinking about that and also considering the body here and how right now, perhaps, some of you may be in the preparation stages for a work that the Lord desires for you. There have been people that God has placed in your path People who have blessed you by taking time to minister to you, by taking time to come alongside of you, by taking time to talk to you and open the word of God to you. 
Maybe there's some people who've come along and have been a financial help to you. See, God oftentimes has these people in your path to open a door of opportunity, to allow certain ministry experience to happen, to bring you into connections with other people, perhaps, that God will use to further mature you, further prepare you for his work in this world. See, Paul's days, when we look at Paul, his days on the other side of the fence, persecuting the church, standing there observing Stephen as he's stoned, his conversion on the way to Damascus, his near-death experiences in Damascus and Jerusalem, his time spent in Arabia, his time back in his hometown Tarsus, his one-year ministry stint in Antioch with Barnabas. God had been preparing him for such a time as this. Lots of preparation work, lots of hard preparation work Paul had gone through. And so the church having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, laid hands on them, they were commissioning them for this work. They weren't setting them apart as some, some high upper elite person. They were commissioning them. They were essentially saying, we're in you. We're in this thing with you. We're, we're together with you. We're laying our hands. Lord bless you as you go. The church at Antioch was behind Paul and Barnabas as they were leaving. They were supportive. They were encouraging. They were prayerful. We see that the church sent them away. That's verse 3. The idea of the word there, sent them away, the church sent them away, has in mind to, to release or to let go. The church just let, let them go. Release them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had set them apart. The Holy Spirit had called them. And the church, the, all the church, the church recognized this. And the church released them to carry out the ministry that was set forth for them from the Spirit. And so we see then that the Spirit is the one in verse 4 who truly sends them. The church is responsive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They let them go. They release them. And so here we are at the end of chapter, verse 3. And, and we're already, this is going to be good. This is really going to be good. Because the Holy Spirit's the one sending them. God is sending them. He's moving them. His gospel started in Jerusalem. Back at the beginning of this book. And it's already expanded into the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's reached Antioch. And now the Lord is still moving, still stirring in the hearts of his people. And this gospel truth is now about to extend outside the regions of Judea and Samaria. This is going to be good. If you look back at your map, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. You can look at your map. You know where, you know where Syria and Antioch is. You know where Seleucia is. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. They went down. Antioch was a mountainous region. They went down to Seleucia, some 15 miles. They went to Seleucia, the port city. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. They sailed. In other words, they got on a boat, right? They got on a ship. They sailed to Cyprus. Do you see Cyprus on your map? And when they arrived in Salamis, Salamis is that city there right on the eastern portion of the island, okay? And they arrived in Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. Okay, so they reached Cyprus, arrived in the city of Salamis, eastern part of the island. Salamis was a, a Greek commercial city, a common place for, for trading. And according to the text, it had a good-sized Jewish population already established. Notice the word synagogues, plural. Okay, note that in the text. There was more than one. 
Right? So there was a pretty good-sized Jewish population now already established. Barnabas, remember, is from Cyprus. And following Stephen's death, we read in Acts eleven nineteen that there were men who were scattered even to the far island of Cyprus, right, during that scattering. And then we also saw in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 11 that there were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who were instrumental in the early witnessing efforts at the church in Antioch. So it's important to see that the word of God had already been doing some work here in Cyprus prior, prior to their arrival in Salamis, okay? So it's important to know that. They go into the synagogue and they preach the word of God. Now, Luke, the writer, moved by the Spirit, doesn't give us any record of the fruit that came about as a result of their preaching on this particular occasion. But he does mention the synagogues, and he tells us that there was a Jewish population in the area. And it also helps us, I believe, to see the established pattern of Barnabas and Saul. I want you to note that when they journey to a new place, they typically are looking for the synagogues. Okay? Just keep that in mind. As they go to different places, you're going to see them oftentimes going into the synagogues. Why? Well, perhaps there's initially some familiarity with the word of God there. There's a good connect point with Jews, with perhaps some God-fearers there who are listening. But they also live out the principle that we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And we're going to see here, even next week, the week after... There's going to be a word spoken to the Jews. There's going to be a strong dislike. And there's going to be one of these kind of things. Or as Jesus was shaking the dust off your feet thing. And Paul has been sent to the Gentiles as well. Right? We see in, in Acts 9, 15 and 16. Remember he was blinded and he was there in that counter with Ananias. And, and, and the Lord's telling Ananias, this is my chosen vessel. My vessel of election literally means, this is my chosen vessel. And I am going to show him what it's going to mean to bear the name of Christ. And I'm going to show him through many sufferings and hardships that he's going to go before my people, the children of Israel. He's going to stand before kings. And he's going to stand before Gentiles. And he's going to proclaim my name. That's Acts 9, 15 and 16, by the way. That's, that's the Lord's per- The Lord is shaping him. And now he's actually in that place. He's, he's heading in that direction. John is mentioned as being along for the journey. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this situation, and we're going to get to this. There's going to be a little sticky situation that's going to pop up in Acts chapter 15, right before we get into 16. John, Mark, Paul, and Barnabas, there just seemed to be, ah, there's something that just didn't, didn't work too well. And we don't know all the details. So I'm not going to speculate on all, what all the details might be. I do know that Barnabas was a cousin of John Mark. So they were, relation, they were, they were kin. Colossians 4.10 says that Barnabas is a cousin, okay? So there's some family connection between Barnabas and John, John Mark. Perhaps that ties in a little bit to some of the tensions that go on. So if you look at your map, I'm going to read 6 and 7. So they're, they're, they're going from Salamis. When they had gone through the island, some of your translations say when they had gone through the whole island, literally, they went through the whole island, they found a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, 
from Salamis, the, the men traveled through the whole island. This is interesting. All right, this is interesting. Keep in mind, remember his feet in a journey. Okay? With, with respect to the topography of the land, of the island, it's largely mountainous region. If you do one of those, uh, one of those Google satellite look and see, you can see that, that the land is largely mountainous region. The island of Cyprus, the, the central and western part of the island is pretty much mountain range, right? The Trudos mountain range, it's, it's huge. And then along the north, northeastern border of the island, the, the Karenius mountain range, it's just like serves as a backbone. That, that, you know that part that sticks out on the far northeast? That, that's the that mountain range, just borders that whole northeastern line. So they, they land at Salamis, and now they're probably going to journey the southern portion of the island. Probably going to go to the southern portion of the island, and they're going to make their way. Now, from the farthest point over here in the island all the way to over here, we're looking at about 140 miles. This way, about 60 miles. Okay? So, from where they are in Salamis to where they need to go to Paphos, where the Lord is leading them to Paphos, 90 miles. It's about a 90-mile trip. Okay? 90 miles, if you take on average, if they're walking. I don't know if they're walking. I'm assuming they're walking. They're going through. And as they're going through village to village, they're preaching. They're sharing the Lord Jesus Christ as they're journeying to where they're going. But 90 miles divided by about 15 miles a day on foot, which is pretty generous. That's about a six-day trip, about a week-long trip, okay, from one end of the island to the other. I'm just giving you some understanding here that they didn't just pop into Paphos. There was a journey that took place, okay? So let's follow the journey. You see on your map, that's one of the reasons I believe it's helpful to have a map. You can see where they're going. Coming into Paphos, which was the capital of the day, the place where the Greek goddess Aphrodite was worshipped. A general sense of immorality took place in town. These men, they encountered a Jew and a Roman appointed government official, this proconsul. The text seems to connect the two. Bar Jesus was with the proconsul. Perhaps he was employed by him, we're not sure. But he was connected on a regular basis with the main government official in Paphos. Bar-Jesus is deemed a false prophet as well. Jew, a Jew and a false prophet. Keep that in mind. Sergius Paulus is deemed an intelligent man. You know, as I read the text, I, I'm initially, my initial read, I, I wonder what it is that makes him so intelligent. He's hanging around with a false prophet. This guy named Bar-Jesus. Son of Jesus or son of salvation. He's far from son of Jesus. Perhaps Sergius is deemed intelligent for his willingness to hear the word of God being brought forth by Barnabas and Saul. At, at any rate, Sergius calls for the Notice the text says he calls for them to come. He's seeking to hear the word of God. That's what the text says. He sought to hear the word of God. Someone in the text is seeking to hear the word of God. I think there's some conflict about to come. Verse 8 is pivotal in the text because it says a lot about this false prophet named Bar-Jesus. But Elemas, the sorcerer, for so his name is... Tra- Elemas, in the translation, 
the, 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 the bar Jesus, there's, there's Aramaic name and there's a transliteration of the Greek, Elemas, meaning magician. There's, there's a couple different names here that are being put in place as Luke gives us. He's a sorcerer. He's a magician. It says that he withstood them. He opposed them. Who's the them? That would be Paul and Barnabas. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. While Barnabas and Saul may have encountered difficulties already up to this point, the text really is, is silent on conflict. You know, from the point in time when the church sends them out from Antioch. We really don't have a whole lot of conflict up to this point. That work for which they were set apart by the Holy Spirit, that hard work, conflict has arrived. Didn't take her long, did it? It usually doesn't when you're the light going into a place of darkness. What form has this conflict arrived? The conflict in Acts 13.8 is much the same conflict that you encounter today around you. It's the kind of conflict that arises when God's truth and God's light is brought to bear upon a people or a place where falsehood and darkness have contented themselves. I want you to notice that Barnabas and Saul are about the work of the Spirit, and yet they encounter conflict. They're about the work of God, and they're encountering conflict. How can that be? Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Remember, he just got baptized. Remember that? And was led by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. What, for vacation? No. Being tempted for 40 days by whom? By the devil. The core of conflict, church, is this. Sergius is seeking, people are seeking things in this text. Sergius is seeking to hear the word of God. Elymas, the sorcerer, is seeking to oppose Barnabas and Saul. And at the same time, he has two, a dual purpose in his seeking. He, he's wanting to oppose Barnabas and Saul on one hand. And he's also at the same time seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Barnabas and Saul are seeking, what? To share the gospel truth. To shine the light of Christ. These were men called and equipped by the Holy Spirit to do his work. And so there's a prime context right here, a, a platform, a scenario where, for the word of God to be brought to bear on the scene. Amen? The word of God needs to be brought to bear right here. Perhaps in your own life, these same three positions that are talked about in the text... Who's seeking to hear from God in your context? Is there anybody you know? Are you seeking to hear from God? Is there someone in your context that's seeking to oppose you? Your word, your message. Is there someone who is seeking to keep you away from hearing a message? Who's seeking to share the gospel? Having Christ in you and the Holy Spirit in you, 
Who's seeking to share the gospel today? I find it interesting that Elymas is seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As a Jew, he more than likely knew what the faith was. At least he, he knew he had some framework. I'm convinced he had some framework of this faith. But here he is in Paphos alongside the most significant official on the island, perhaps getting a nice income for his religious instruction. And now these guys come into town proclaiming the truth of the gospel. See, falsehood is just about to get exposed. Darkness is about to see the light. And Elymas is doing what he can. Do you see? He's fran- I, I sense he's frantically scrambling, trying to do his best. To oppose the truth and turn the proconsul away. Do you see a spiritual battle going on here? There seems to me to be a, a spiritual battle raging right here in the text. Paul, if we know, as we get to learn more about Paul, I know many of us have a context of the Apostle Paul. We have the context before he actually goes into these journeys. Here, perhaps, it's helpful to have some of that context of Paul. Because Paul, as we know, is not known to back away from spiritual conflict. He's not known to shy away from spiritual opposition to the truth. He's not a coward in the faith, is he? According to the proverb writer, chapter 26, there's a time when you remain silent in the company of a fool, lest you also be like him. But that same proverb writer, in the very next verse, also calls you to speak up in the company of a fool, lest that one be wise in his own eyes. It's time to speak, Paul senses, carried along by the Spirit. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled, by the way, from this point forward, he's going to be Paul. No more going back to Saul. He's going to be Paul. Okay? He's going into Gentile territory. He's, he's using Paul. Paul's his name. Change his name. So this right here is the, is the marker. Luke, the historian's writing the book of Acts, moved by the Spirit. This is the the point in time in which his name goes from Saul to now it's Paul from here forward, okay? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, gazed at him, met his eye, and he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. By the way, as you're reading this, There is no way, I just, I'm convinced as I read the text, there's no way that he would have said that in a very soft. This would have been very forceful, the way he said this. I'm convinced. He's speaking, moved by the Spirit. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Paul had been called by the Spirit. He'd been sent out by the Spirit. 
and now is about to speak. He's speaking, being filled with the Spirit. These words are directed by the Spirit, full of all deceit. or The idea of, of he's a schemer, defraud. He's a fake. He's unmasking him right here. You son of the devil, as opposed to son of Jesus. You like that? He's Bar-Jesus. He's introduced as Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. Paul, moved by the Spirit, says you're a son of the devil. You are son of the father of lies, John 8, 44. You are an enemy of all righteousness. You stand as an icon of the world, Elemas, which is always at enmity with the things of God. Will you not stop perverting the straight ways of the Lord? You see, the, the question here implies that Elemas had it, made it a habit up until this point to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. It's like, will you stop perverting the Lord's ways, Elemas? Church, the conflict today is not new. You see, you can't turn your eyes in too many directions without seeing the perversion of the Lord's straight ways. Amen? You can't do it. I mean, you, sometimes it's just driving down the highway and there's a billboard. It's like... The straight ways of the Lord are being perverted. You can't take your feet in too many places today where the perversion of the Lord's straight ways is not evidenced. You can't take your ears very far either before you start to hear the perversion of the Lord's straight ways. Some of this conflict is going on inside your own homes. Let's not be too naive and too um, uh, caught, caught by this and say that this is happening outside of us, outside of our arena. I think some of this perhaps is happening even in our own home. We are perverting the straight ways of the Lord in our own homes, some of us. Parents are, are perverting the straight ways of the Lord when they talk about the Bible, but with their lives they're a stranger to God, to his church, and to his people. Children, are you perverting the straight ways of the Lord? He's made you to walk uprightly even when no one is looking. You know, we have these gadgets today, and, and some of you have your gadgets. And you might think you're the only one looking. Are you perverting the straight ways of the Lord by the things you're looking at? That's, that's between you and the Lord. But I believe the text would call us to ask the question here this morning. Perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Elemas the sorcerer is not the only one perverting the straight ways of the Lord today, church. And how sad of a commentary it is when the people of God, his church, are the ones perverting his ways. That ought not be. Being present on Sunday morning isn't payment to God somehow of acting perverse all week long. Elemas' life is characterized with deceit, defraud, a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. So, so we ask the questions here. Are, are you living a life of deception right now? Are you defrauding anyone? Are you cheating anyone? Are you harming someone by your actions? Is your walk characterized more as a son of the devil? Are you walking around in lies? Are you walking around in darkness? Are you attempting to have fellowship with God and yet work for the enemy? 
Paul says that the hand of the Lord is upon you. Notice that in verse 11. He says, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, first read, you might think, well, that's a good thing. When you see the hand of the Lord upon you in the text, oftentimes that's deemed a really good thing. Here it's not. The hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. I want you to notice the mercy of the Lord embedded right here in the text. Notice he says, not seeing the sun for a time. Now, we don't know the, the continuation and the follow-up story of, of this man, Elymas. I'd like to think that the Lord, though, got his attention through this particular scenario on the island of Cyprus. And immediately, a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. You know what? It's interesting here. Someone else is seeking something right now. What's Elymas seeking? He's seeking a hand. He's seeking someone to lead him because he can't see right now. It was also reminded me, as I was reading this, I was, was thinking about Paul's conversion experience. Do you remember that? On the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he's riding along, and that light from heaven comes down and blinds him and knocks him flat. He was led by hand into Damascus. He was, for a time, blind. And the Lord got his attention, didn't he? Proverbs 22, verse 5 says that thorns and snares are for the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Proverbs 10, verse 9 says, He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. We see evidence of both these Proverbs played out right here in Acts 13. And, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe... You're not perverting the straight ways of the Lord, but you're hanging out with perverted company. The wisdom of the proverb writer is instructive. Are you concerned about guarding your soul? If you are, you'll be sure to remove yourself from the company. Keep in mind that the way of the perverse doesn't have to take the form of a person. It can be an object, something that seeks to draw you away from the faith. Remember, that's what Elymas is trying to do to Sergius Paulus, trying to draw him away from the faith. There are things, there are objects, there are all these kinds of little gadgets that we have, these little idols that we've collected, and they are doing a very nice job today of turning us away from the faith. It could be your work, it could be your hobby, it could be just the, the desire to achieve uh, it could be your education. It could be your time spent on the computer, the social network. All that stuff can be turning you away from the faith. It doesn't have to be a person. Let's be, let's be real clear about that. Be careful that you're not found perverting the straight ways of the Lord. You see, Elymas in the text is not the only one who is about this work. This is, church, this is one event in the history of the church and yet this one event is characteristic of the day in which we live is it not see we are living in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation Jesus says we are so what are you going to do about it Christian are you going to live godly in this present age or not A Christian who desires to live godly understands that the path ahead is difficult. It's laden with snares, laden with traps. 
And yet he can live with confidence on the basis of who God is and what Christ has done and the power that the power of the Holy Spirit resides within him. Amen. We have God. We know we have, we know who God with confidence in God, confidence in who he is. We have we have confidence and faith in what Christ has done and what he's accomplished for us at the cross. And we have peace. We have comfort. We have hope. And that we've been given the promised Holy Spirit to abide within us forever. Pointing us always to the very words of Christ. The text isn't complete until we get to verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. Amen. He believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Remember the conflict back in verses 6 and 7. And even in verse 8. Sergius sought to hear the word of God. Elymas was seeking to turn Sergius away from the faith. There's a receptive heart to hear the word. And there's a receptive heart or hearts in this case. Saul and Barnabas. To share the word. And when you mix those two things together with a God whose implanted word has power to save, James chapter 1. It's an example, church. Poignant reminder of how one believes. I want you to notice that the proconsul saw something and he heard something. He saw something and he heard something. His belief was attached to what he heard concerning the teaching of the Lord, accompanied by what he saw. What did he see? He saw Bar-Jesus unmasked for who he really was. That was Bar-Devil. He was not Bar-Jesus. He wasn't the son of salvation at all. He was a fake. He was a fraud. He was an enemy of all righteousness. He saw the hand of the Lord at work, blinding Elymas on the spot for perverting the straight ways of the Lord. He saw in Paul and Barnabas. Listen, I believe he saw in Paul and Barnabas. He saw two men who were committed to the proclamation of God's word of truth. I believe he saw two men that easily could have foregone putting up a fight for the soul of Sergius Paulus. These guys are just traveling through. Oh, but wait. Aren't we just traveling to another place as well? We're pilgrims and sojourners too, aren't we? See, maybe we have more in common with Paul and Barnabas than what you think. They're just traveling through. They're coming through Paphos, directed by the Holy Spirit. And here's a man who is seeking to hear the word. And they let him hear the word. And as they are obedient to letting him hear the word, the Lord moves mightily in their midst. And so Sergius sees the hand of the Lord at work. But he believes as a result of the teaching. I believe, church, what Sergius Paulus saw was the love of Christ in action. He saw two men living out what they believed. What he heard from these men came into some form of alignment with what he saw. The church has done a lot of talking in her day. And yet I don't know how much witnessing she's done. And by witnessing, I'm not talking about going door to door necessarily. I'm using it in the sense that Acts 1.8 uses it. Being a witness to Jesus with the power given to you in the Holy Spirit. 
Paul and Barnabas are in the beginning stages of proclaiming the gospel unto the end of the earth. And at the same time, they're living out what it is to be, in, in the moment, they're living this out, what it means to be a witness to Jesus, allowing their lives to be seen and their voices to be heard. Church, is there something about your life that you would desire someone not to see? If we were just to have just, you know, I know when you go through the airport, they have these scans and things beep when you got change in your pockets and you got stuff and you got to take it out, right? If you were to walk through one of those machines and it was to tell you all the stuff that's been going on in your life, would you be proud of that as you stood before the Lord? Would you be proud of that as you stood before brothers and sisters in the body? What are they seeing in your life? What are they hearing from you, from your mouth? The church in Antioch was where we first heard the term Christian. And you know, when it first came out back in the day, it really was a term of derision. They, it was, they mocked them, those Christians. Back in the first century, a Christian was one who wholeheartedly identified himself with Christ. He followed Jesus with his life. And I believe that God worked in and through that church at Antioch in large part, in large part, because their hearts were committed to Christ. Their unwavering devotion was to the things of the Lord, not to the things of the world. They cared deeply for souls. And God opened the door for his gospel truth to move forward. The church in Antioch wasn't praying and, and trying to develop and scheme and plan this wonderful church growth plan. What, what this looks like. They were simply praying to the Lord. And in the midst of their prayers to the Lord, in the midst of worshiping the Lord, the Lord opened up a door, an opportunity for their church, in particular for these two men to go and minister to the nations with the gospel. Some questions that the church, I believe, need to be asked. Some of them are hard. Some of them are painful questions to ask. How long has it been since hope in Christ has seen evidence of a converted soul? How long has it been? How long has it been since you have been a witness in the Acts 1-8 sense? Allowing others not only to hear the gospel truth, but to see it in action. We got to remember, this is not, and this is evidence here in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 13. This, what we're talking about in terms of the gospel movement, this is not some academic exercise. This is life lived out so that people can see and people can hear what a Christian is, who a Christian is, what a Christian believes, how a Christian acts. How much longer will it be before we start taking God's work seriously? Are you concerned about the souls of those here? We'll start right here. Are you concerned about the souls in your household? Souls in your sphere of influence. Who is it in your sphere that needs to hear and see the truth of the gospel yet today? Are you aware of the number of dying souls that you encounter on any given day? 
Are you going to be ready to confront the truth in the power of the Spirit when conflict comes your way? We see conflict right here in the text. Conflict, spiritual conflict. There's a battle. There's someone seeking to hear the word. There's someone seeking to oppose that word and turn this other brother away from hearing the faith. And then there are a couple of these men, and having been, they're just, they're just, they showed up, they're here in Paphos at this point in time. And this proconsul is seeking to hear the word, and guess what they have? They've been given the word. Are there people in your path who are seeking to hear the word? And maybe you don't even know it. But you probably will never know it if you never open your mouth. B, the church. Walk in the light. Pull that belt up, that belt of truth. Gird it tightly about your waist. You see, because there's work. There's difficult work. There's work ahead. It's glorious work, though, because it's the Lord's work. But it's worth it all for the sake of Christ. It's because he's worthy that we take the name of Jesus with us. And who knows, church? Who, know, who knows? There might be a Sergius Paulus in your life whose heart is open to hearing and seeing right now. Are you concerned enough about his soul to speak up? Are you confident enough in God that his word has the power to save? There's some questions I think that the text prompts us to ask. We're going to pray. If you want to go ahead and bow, that's, that's fine. You can bow your head. We're going to, I'm going to read a, a scripture. I believe it's pertinent here at this point. Following the reading of the scripture, then I'm going to pray. Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me. That I may, make, may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, may our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I pray this church would stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by the adversaries around us. Greater is he who is in us than is in the world. 
And may your Holy Spirit have his way in us, granting us grace for every hurdle, every conflict that we might run with faith in order to win the prize for which we've been called heavenward. May we lay aside everything that hinders and the weights that impede progress. And may this church run together looking unto Jesus, the author and originator of the faith. It's in the name of the one who always walked in the straight ways of his Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen.